welcome to everyone who is here this morning and to those who are also watching online. So I actually didn't put it in the notes, but I, I did have a short reflection on the anniversary of uh, September 11, 2001. So I'll, uh, I'll just give a, a brief recap and a few points from a biblical worldview of what this means for us. Uh, I think those of us who are 25 or older, we probably remember where we were that morning of September 11th. I remember classes were about to begin at Cal Poly Pomona, and um, they, can, they closed the school that day after, uh, after the incidents where specifically uh, the two jetliners crashed against the two um, buildings there in New York, the World Trade Center. And as we think about this tragedy, this terrorist attacks, we often hear, like, we shall never forget, like, we shouldn't forget. But sometimes we repeat something so much that it loses meaning. Like, what does it mean when we say we should never forget? <coughs> By nature, in our humanity, in our fallenness, we do forget. At a time when tragedy strikes, I could think not only of the terrorist attacks that happened, but also, let's say, when we have a tragedy in our family, is very present, right? When we have a, the loss of a loved one, it hits home. And in those moments, in those days, we're thinking like, man, this, this, this is bad. This really sucks. And for many of us, it's a time to get right with God, to dedicate our lives again to the things of God. But what happens as the days, as the weeks, as the months, as the years go by, you look back, forgot. We've gone back to our, our regular day-to-day uh, -day activities, not really taking into account that life is fragile. So when we say never forget the events of 9-11, what can we really take away from a biblical worldview, world from what God has to say? Because every event that is going on in our world or that has happened as significant as this, God is not silent and it speaks to all of us. So what do we mean when we say we never forget? Let us not forget that we are forgetful individuals. And unless we are reminded constantly, we will forget. Secondly, let us be reminded of the depravity of men. The terrorist attacks of people who have a particular worldview is a reminder that humanity by default is not good. When you hear in pop culture, they tell you, follow your heart, people are essentially good, that's a lie. Scripture says that humanity is depraved. By nature, we are children of wrath, we are enemies of God. We shall never forget that the heart of man, as God says, is deceitfully wicked. We should also not forget that not all ideologies are equally valid nor neutral. In our postmodern world, we have this idea that we should not insult anyone, we should not offend anyone by telling them that their beliefs or their religion is false. That's not biblical. We are commanded by scripture to stand up to ideologies that are false. 
in the case of the September 11 attacks, they were not done out of neutrality or mere insanity, but rather the terrorist attacks were carried out due to the belief, due to the worldview, due to the, due to the ideology which is rooted in spiritual beliefs that jihad must take place, that Islam is to world the world. This is not said nowadays because, whoa, people might get insulted. Only the biblical worldview is valid. Never forget that whatever ideology disagrees with Jesus, it is false, it is evil, it is satanic, it is wicked. Let us not forget. And then, let's get more personal. Let us not forget that we are mortal. And we can become instantly vulnerable to the point of death. We shall not forget that we might die this very day. Think of all those parents, all those sons, daughters that left for work that morning on September 11th. Without knowingly said goodbye to their family for the very, for, for the very last time. Or perhaps some of them didn't get that chance. And they never thought that that day would be the last day that they saw their family. We must never forget that this life is fragile. And we are walking every day on the edge of eternity. And we're going to fall into it sooner or later. As I'm doing some studies for one of my classes about the roots of a Reformed Baptist, one of the commentaries that I read, it made a side note that in England, and this is true even to, to this day in some of the churches, that churches had their local cemetery right there. So for us, what that would look like is if we congregate here, right outside in this yard, you would see graves. And you would read those names and you would think, I know this brother, he was just with us not too long ago. And I thought of that, that that's a great reminder that as we congregate, as we come together as the people of God, in a big way, it's a reminder, if we would have had those graves right outside, as we walk in, as we walk out, it's a reminder that it's just a matter of time before my body lays to rest where the other ones are. We shall never forget then how easily and rapidly death will come to you. Some of you are younger. You may think, oh, you know, I, I got the whole time in the world. Wrong. Even in my own family, this past year, I lost two family members. One who was in his 20s, one who was 18. Fragility of life, let us not forget. Let us not forget that God is sovereign. God allows evil for divine purposes. We are to find God's glory and his purposes in every tragic circumstance. In that, let us not forget that our biggest problem still, as bad as it is, is not the terrorist. It is not corrupt politicians. It is not the evil that is going on in the world. That is not our biggest problem. Let us never forget that our biggest problem is still our own sin. 
let that be a reminder that we need a Savior so that he may grant us grace and mercy to abide and walk in his ways. So let us never forget, let us be reminded after 20 years of this tragedy of the depravity of men, of our mortality, and of our need for a Savior. Let us not forget that. With that, let us turn to the study today, which we are going through the book of Habakkuk. We are approaching the end of chapter 1 in Habakkuk. Habakkuk is a book of lament in which the prophet Habakkuk brings these complaints, these supplications to God. And today we're going to see the first portion of his second complaint, of his second lament, of his second crying out to God. So if you are able to stand, please let's stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to be reading Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. And the infallible word of God reads, Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make man mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at the book of Habakkuk this morning, may you remind us of your sovereignty. May you remind us of your holy and perfect attributes so that we may know our place as we look to you in your glory and in your majesty. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So the title for today, the sermon titled, as I studied this, I decided to name it Habakkuk's Second Lament, But Why, O Lord? We have seen so far in chapter 1 that Habakkuk is genuinely concerned for his people, the people of Israel. He's crying out to God for help because all he sees is corruption, wickedness, disobedience. And Habakkuk is saying, Lord, don't you see what's going on? Please intervene. This, this is too chaotic. And Lord, why does it seem that you don't listen to me? You turn a blind eye to what's going on. Don't we feel like that sometimes? Specifically today, with everything that's going on in the world. As we come to God and plead with Him in supplication, if we are honest, we may have a sensation similar to what Habakkuk had, which is, Lord, aren't you looking at what's going on? Don't you care about all the wickedness and suffering that is going on? So to Habakkuk's surprise, God answers his prayer, his first prayer, but Habakkuk is not too pleased with the answer that God gave him. So we can now begin to see why this oracle, the book of Habakkuk, it says that it's a burden, is something that Habakkuk 
needs to take in and then share further with the people. A message that is initially not of hope, but of judgment. We saw this week then that God's ways many times include first judgment before restoration. And many times that judgment, that discipline is as a result of our own rebelliousness. Our lifestyle, idolatry, injustice. That's exactly what the people of Israel were going through. So in today's passage, we will see that in the second lament, this petition, this supplication, Habakkuk points out certain true attributes of God. Habakkuk says, Lord, I know that you are good. And then he gives some of those attributes of God. And then Habakkuk basically says, but then why do you do this, Lord? So we're going to see that although God is rightly recognized by Habakkuk, Habakkuk does not fully understand the sovereignty of God in his complaint, in his lament. So today we're going to break the sermon into three parts, as we typically do, and it's going to go as follows. First, we're going to see God's character, character rightly understood. Secondly, we're going to see God's sovereignty misunderstood. And thirdly, we're going to see God's character demanding justice. Okay, so let us look at the first point. God's character rightly understood. We'll take a look at the first half of verses 12 and 13 as I have them in the notes. It says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. Habakkuk 1.13a then reads, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. So in here, Habakkuk points out attributes of the Holy God. Let me first point out that there is a textual variance in verse 12 where it says we shall not die some early hebrew manuscripts read you shall not die speaking of yahweh god almighty this could be a scribal error in a variant that results as the scribes not wanting to attribute death to god or even implying that god could die and i think in the context of god's punishment or God's discipline to his people, I think what makes most sense, I would side on, on the side of, of those who say that that verse actually should read, we shall not die. And I'll give you a, a couple of verses of why. In that context of people going through trials and suffering, we have Psalm 118, 18, which reads, the Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Right? Discipline, you suffer, but yet you are spared. Second Corinthians 6, 8 and 9 is talking. Uh, Paul is writing here and he says, Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed. So, right, so we get this overall context from other scriptures that, it may seem as though in Habakkuk's prayer, when he's identifying the attributes of God, yet he is faithful and hopeful to know that God is not going to totally destroy them. For the Christian, 
it could apply as follows. We know that God does and can discipline us, even harshly, even up until the point of physical death. Yet, Scripture says that our soul is saved, even if we are severely disciplined as Christians. So then Habakkuk really, rightly mentions some of the attributes of God, and they are as follows. First, he says that God is everlasting. That points to the eternality of God. God is uncreated. God never began to exist. The triune God is the only uncaused cause. This is what we learned from the Bible. This is the God of the Bible. God has no needs. In theological terms, this is sometimes referred to as the aseity of God. It comes from the Latin, se, meaning from or by himself. God is sufficient within himself. God did not, does not depend on his creation in order to exist perfectly and righteously. God's aseity then affirms his lordship over his creation and over time. But yet, God is free to enter and intervene in his creation. The eternality of God. When Paul was talking to the philosophers at Athens... In Acts 17, Paul describes God to these pagans as follows. Acts 17, 24 and 25 reads, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So we see that as Paul is introducing the true God to these idolaters, he, with no apology, tells them who God is. So God has lordship and absolute rule over his creation, and he is independent of everything he has created. Not only does he not depend on anything or anyone, but we actually are completely dependent upon him. The eternality of God. Secondly, Habakkuk rightly points to the holiness of God. He refers to God as my holy one. In Isaiah's vision of God, in the seraphim, in Isaiah chapter 6, it reads as follows, Isaiah 6, 3. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. When we see in scripture that an attribute is repeated, it gives us a sense that this is really important. God is the only being in scripture who is attributed as holy, holy, holy. It raises his his stature, it gives us the awareness of how holy God is. And then 1 Samuel 2, chapter 2, reads as follows. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. And then one more, Hebrews seven twenty six, referring to Jesus. It says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. 
So what is this concept of holiness that we see in scripture about God? It means this. It means that God's moral character is so perfect, is so impeccable. He is so good that he is completely and distinctly separated from his creation. There is an infinite gulf separating God from his creation. Because the creation is a fallen creation. And therefore, there exists an uncrossable separation between God and man that man cannot fix. Only God can. And then Habakkuk says that God has pure eyes and cannot look at evil. This talks to the justice of God. That God is not indifferent to evil. Psalm 89, 14 reads as follows. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. And then again in 2 Chronicles 19, verse 7, it reads. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do. For there is no injustice with the Lord our God, or partiality, or taking bribes. So we see that God is just. He has perfect justice. God is not like man that can err in our estimations or our judgment when it comes to justice. God cannot show partiality. It goes against his perfection. God does not show partiality. I don't think we often understand how heavy that is. That should scare us. The fact that God is not partial. Many believe, as I once believed, you know, maybe I do believe in God. I really don't follow Him. I have no regard for the things of God. But if and when I die, if I, if I come before God, I don't know why, but I kind of feel that He'll give me a pass. Right? I mean, there's a famous song that is sung like, I don't know why, but I think that St. Peter will call my name. Right? Making the, alluding to the fact that, you know what? Yeah, if and when I die, I'll, I'll get a free pass. My friends, not so. God is the God of perfect justice. It is one of his attributes. And if we think that we're going to get a break, what that actually means is that we think that God is corrupt. Just by our, our thinking that we are actually sinning. Because we think that because we would show partiality, if we want to be cool with someone, we would show them partiality. But God is not partial. God is a perfect and righteous judge. He is not like us. And therefore, we should be fearful of God's perfect justice. Think of it this way. If somebody wrongs us, somebody wrongs me, I demand justice right now. But when I wrong others, or if I wrong God, like I want some leniency. See that? So then Habakkuk's lament rightly makes mention of God's Attributes. God is eternal and independent, while we are mortal and totally dependent. God is holy and perfect, while we are sinners and imperfect. 
And then God is impartial. God is just. He cannot turn a blind eye to our sin. And we can easily be blinded or swayed to be partial. God cannot. So those were God attributes as mentioned by Habakkuk. Secondly, although God's attributes are rightly identified, now God's sovereignty is misunderstood. Sovereignty, what does that mean? It means that God is in absolute rule over everything that's happening. God is absolutely in control of all the chaos that is ongoing in the world. Habakkuk 1 verses uh, 13b and 14, it reads, Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. So here is when the title of the sermon hits home. Like, Lord, if you are this way, why are you doing this? Right? Habakkuk says you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. In a way, it sounds like Habakkuk is having a hint of deism, right? The idea that God is creator, there is a supreme being, but he's kind of just stepped away and just let things just run, run their course. And we know that's not the case, right? But yet, in the desperation of Habakkuk, it seems as though he's pleading with God, telling him, Lord, why does it seem that you just left your people to fend for themselves? So then we can technically have knowledge of the attributes of God, his holiness, his justice, his faithfulness, his love, his perfections. And yet, when we are under a trial, we can misunderstand God's purposes, God's sovereignty. We can have misconceptions about his lordship, about his divine purposes in what he ordains. So Habakkuk is grieved by the fact that discipline, punishment, consequence of their sin is being brought upon the Israelites. So then the question is, does God idly look at traitors, as Habakkuk says, and remain silent when some people are being attacked, used, abused? Now, to Habakkuk's credit, it kind of does seem that way many times, does it not? Like, where is it that the wicked people, it seems like everything's fine with them. And those that are at least less evil than them, or are trying to mind their own business, they're the ones being affected. They're the ones suffering. So this is, this is a common complaint. Romans 12.19 reads as follows. It says, Beloved, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Justice will come to the evildoers. Now, many times I ask God, please use me, Lord, to bring vengeance on the evildoers. That's my wife. <laughs> That's something I struggle with. But if God says that he's going to take vengeance, like justice is coming, you can take that to the bank. Either in this lifetime or when those evildoers meet him as their creator. Psalm 103 verse 8 reads, 
The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. You see that? This is why it seems as though God is not acting, but God is patient. In His kindness, He abounds in steadfast love. So then, let us think of this. If God was not slow to anger, if He was not merciful, if He was not gracious, if He was not abounding in steadfast love, all the wicked would be wiped. They would have been wiped out already, including you and me. Because according to God, we are all sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. Now, but I want grace, right? Yeah, get those terrorists. Get them. No. If God would have dealt with all evil already, we all would have been wiped out. Thanks be to God that he is abounding in steadfast love. God will execute justice. Sin and evil will not go on forever. That is God's promise to us. So then let us not confuse God's sovereignty, Him being in control of everything, and Him doing things in His timeline. Let us not confuse that with God is just turning a blind eye. Although it may seem that way many times. Okay, thirdly, the character of God demands that justice be carried out. Habakkuk 1 verse 12b says, O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. Talking about the wicked Chaldeans that are going to come and plunder the land and put the Israelites in captivity. Just so that we get a, a picture of what this is, this will look something like this. Let's say that one of us cries out to the Lord and says, Lord, don't you, don't you see all the wickedness going on in the U.S. right now? People suffering, you know, all the chaos. Lord, fix this. And then God comes to you and says, okay, I hear your prayer. But first... I'm going to bring the wicked Taliban to take over your land. It's like, what? See, that's the context of this passage. That is more or less what God is doing to the Israelites. Habakkuk is pleading to please change this. And God says, before I restore you, there needs to be consequence for your disobedience. And in more evil more evil people are coming to put them under submission. You see, this is why Habakkuk is so grieved. Because God is holy, because God is perfect in his judgments, sin and disobedience cannot be overlooked. Even if God's discipline is by the use of others more evil than the ones who are being judged. And those that are more evil, as we will learn, they're going to get it too. Okay, They're not going to go... They're not going to go unpunished. The point is that every sin, all disobedience will be accounted for. You know, as, as we grew up with, with our parents, as some of us had strict parents, in the case of me with my father, 
I think there's times that I was able to get away with some things. Not so with God. God's perfect justice must be met. I have a quote from Matthew Henry in this regard. It says, God's people need correction and deserve it. They must expect it. They shall have it. When wicked men are let loose against them, it is not for their destruction that they may be ruined, but for their correction that they may, that they may be reformed. It talks about God's faithfulness in restoring his people. Right? We know that a loving father corrects his children, disciplines his children. So how much would a righteous judge be himself judged as a good judge or as a bad judge, right? Let us think of this court system in, in our own world, right, in our fallen world, where if a judge comes to speak over a case where there is someone who is rightly so proven to be guilty, a good judge will issue a correct verdict, namely that the criminal needs to repay the damage that has been done. Right? If we were the ones who were trespassed against and that criminal gets away with it, we would say that's, that's a corrupt judge. We would be quick and rightly so to claim that, right? How much more so with the ultimate judge? God Almighty has a divine courtroom, so to speak. When each of us come face to face with him, the books will be opened. And all my sins, all your sins will be there. There's no hiding, right? Just like I said, nobody's going to get away with our sin not being exposed to God. And at that point, our penalty that is owed for breaking God's law, for being rebellious, for our disobedience, will either, one, have been paid in full by the perfection of Christ, by His righteousness. And that tab, that moral bank, that moral tab is going to have a paid in full by Christ. Or, number two, we will be left to pay with our own soul in eternal punishment, which is the only suitable payment. Eternity. Suffering in eternity for offending an infinitely holy God. The Canons of Dort, <clears throat> section 2, read as follows in this respect. It says, God is not only supremely merciful, but also supremely just. This justice requires, as God has revealed in the world, in the word, that sin, the, the sin we have committed against his infinite majesty be punished with both temporal and eternal punishments of soul as well as body. We cannot escape these punishments unless satisfaction is given to God's justice. All that to say, God's perfect justice must be satisfied. The moral tab that has been accumulated by our disobedience must be paid in full. Otherwise, God would be a corrupt judge. So what can we take away from this passage this morning? That's a recap. <clears throat> Sounds like really bad news, right? Like, man, this is not good. Well, first let us be reminded of this. 
When we know the character of God, it should bring comfort to us. I go back to that small phrase that we talked about at the beginning, where Habakkuk says, we shall not die. Habakkuk knows that there is comfort in knowing that God is faithful to his people in the midst of the chaos and turbulent times that he was living in. God is faithful to his people. In turn, that should encourage our faithfulness to our God because he is faithful to us. Psalm 44, verse 17 reads as follows. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to, our, to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Right? This is an acknowledgement that because God is so good, because God is righteous, because God is just, that our hearts should respond in faithfulness to him. There's hope in that. As much as God's justice must be satisfied, he offers a way of escape for us by trusting in Christ so that no matter what happens in our current circumstance, we can have the assurance that we are forgiven, that we are right with our Creator. And that even if calamity comes upon us up until the point of us dying physically, that we would still be with Him in eternity. Second thing we can take away from today's lesson is, get this, God doesn't need you. You need God. This is the aseity of God. We should remember that God's lordship and total independence from his creation is a fact. God's lordship. And then that our vulnerability and dependence upon him can really hit us like a ton of bricks. Like it hit us on 9-11, right? When these events happen. When it hits us, when we get sick or when we find ourselves in a rough spot with a loved one who is perhaps in danger of dying. We are vulnerable. We are dependent upon God. He's, he's dependent on nothing. He doesn't need you. Yet he's merciful to you and extends to us forgiveness and grace through our Lord Jesus Christ. In that, we need to remember that God is not incomplete with our worship. God doesn't need our worship. Our worship, rather, to God is an acknowledgement of our own need for His compassion, a need for His mercy toward us. And that He even provides for our needs in His common grace. Scripture says that the rain, meaning provision, falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. God has been so good to us. And that should remind us of our ultimate need for Him. He doesn't need us. There's times when um, I've invited uh, you know, friends of mine to, to come to, to service, to congregate. And um, I, I, I'm the type of person that I never push it, right? And for some reason, they might feel guilty or whatnot, and they text me or they call me, telling me why they couldn't make it. And I'm like, hey, it's all right, you know? 
Like, God doesn't need you to go to church. You need to go to church. It sounds a little bit humorous, but it's true. Like, God doesn't need us here. Like, we need God. In hands, that's why we're here. And then lastly, let us remember that the moral tab, our disobedience, every time we put God under something and we idolize our priorities, our disobedience, our anger, our unfaithfulness, all this accumulating a, a debt. Think of it as you're ordering stuff in a restaurant. Right? And I, I often tell my wife when we get the bill, like, man, did we really order all that? It was 100 bucks, really? You start going line by line, it's like, yeah, I did order that. Yeah. And then soon you realize, man, I guess they're right. I do all this. Right? Similarly so with our disobedience. When those books are opened, you're like, what? That's how much I offended God? As you start looking through every line, you'll realize, yeah, that's right. So that moral tab must be paid. And it is our prayer this morning, it is our hope this morning, that that debt is paid by Christ for us individually. This is not in a family plan. Nobody is born with a paid moral tab. Nobody. We all are sinners. We all accumulate that debt. And we must come with repentance to Christ for His forgiveness so that His righteousness can pay our sin, our debt, by His death on the cross, by His perfect life, by His resurrection. Or, if you refuse that, you will pay it in eternity in hell. Let our hearts not be hardened to this truth but rather in humility let us repent let us turn to Christ so that by trusting in him in faith in humility in thanksgiving that we may be restored and whatever this life may bring that we may have the peace that surpasses all understanding knowing that if we are right with God everything that happens will be ultimately for our good and for his glory let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning as we learn about your character, as we learn about your perfections, as we learn about your sovereignty and your justice. Lord, let us turn to you so that we can have the assurance that, <clears throat> that our justice has been met, your justice has been met in the person of Christ by his perfect life, by his death on the cross, and by the resurrection from the dead. In that he claimed victory from sin and death, we can claim that as ours as well. Not by anything we do, but by simply trusting in Christ. That our lives may be transformed. This very day we ask this, Lord Jesus. Amen.